1973, a single movie changed the atmosphere of cinema as it is today. And 50 years later, we are talking about it. We are talking about The Exorcist. everybody welcome back to the dissect that film podcast where we dissect the good the bad and the ugly of your favorite films and film franchises i am your host brett parker joining me as always my wonderful co-host dan and angela of dna gaming hello and joining us is the host of the cult worthy podcast and the milf in me we have the wonderful antonio welcome hello welcome 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 it's so good to have you sir welcome in Absolutely. Thank you for having me, giving me the chance to repay the favor of you being on my show, where we talked about Brian De Palma films. And now here we are back in the 70s talking about quintessential 70s horror, right? Right. It, it Literally, a moment, like I say, a movie that kind of changed the trajectory of film as we as we know it. Uh, but before we get into the the movie of the hour... Introduce yourself and tell us about your wonderful podcast. Well, thank you. Yes, uh, my name is Antonio Palacios, the host of the Cult Worthy Cinema Podcast, The Milf and Me, and the host of the now retired Cult Worthy Classic, which was a podcast dedicated to cult cinema made before 1970. Those episodes are still available. We are just no longer producing it anymore. But yeah, uh, two and a half years in the game, the Cultworthy Podcast is a cinema podcast, which you've been a guest on. And the Milf and Me is a comedic relationship podcast where essentially me and my bitter 40-something Milf friend just talk about how shitty dating is in this modern age of apps and ghosting. And essentially, we're like the old people not understanding how the modern people date with technology and all that stuff. All right. That's uh, yeah. I've uh, I've I've <laughs> yes, Dan. Do you have a question? I do. I'm, I'm, this is I'm not gonna go along with this. I promise, a- Antonio. I thought your podcast was it's it's the milf and me is what it's supposed to be, right? Right? Yeah, I'm not the milf. No, no. Obviously, I thought it was the milf in you. I was like, I'm I'm confused by the name, but carry on. It makes way more sense now. <laughs> I mean, you just gave me an idea. <laughs> like, if my co-host ever leaves. Um... There you go. Hey, there you go, man. Gotta have backup plan. <laughs> I'll give I'll give you an associate producer's credit if that ever happens. <laughs> no, no, not that high. Just like the last producer on the the credit roll. Just, so like, oh what yeah, do they do. I don't know. What you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna be like uh, what's her name, the Mercedes McCambridge, who <laughs> took like thirty years for her to be credited as the voice of the demon in this movie. That'll be you, Dan. Really? They're gonna be like, okay, oh yeah, absolutely. we're gonna file. Yeah, we're, we'll credit him. He he had some sort of an idea. <laughs> he was there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yes, all the 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 links to Antonio's wonderful podcast will be down in the description. Make sure to check them out. They are fantastic. So, 
we are talking about The Exorcist from 1973, directed by William Friedkin, who kind of his big break was The French Connection, which came out, I believe, a couple years before this. And when they were looking for a director for this film, it was they they wanted these big names. They had like Kubrick was was an option. Just the the the, the big names of the time. I, I can't really remember all of them on top of my head, but I know Kubrick was one of the names. And literally the French connection was the reason Friedkin got the job. It's just because of the way that it looks. Of course, he brought over his cinematographer from uh, from the French connection to do the exorcist. And then once Friedkin was part of this movie, that's when all hell broke loose. And this production was insane. Before we get to uh, a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, let's talk about our first experience with this movie. Like, what's our history with this movie? And of course, we're going to start with our guest. Antonio, what is your history with The Exorcist? Well, I mean, being a, I'd say, late, late Gen Xer, early millennial, growing up in the age of cable and VHS and rental stores, my parents would, like, speak about this movie as almost some kind of legend, mythology, you know, oh, did you know when this came out in the theaters, people were vomiting in the aisles and they were running out because they were so scared. And my mom always telling me that it was absolutely frightening for her when she saw it as a teenager. I think it came out like a year or two after high school for her. So I was just born to be afraid of this film as a child because they'd always talk about it. And I, I don't know about where you guys are from, but it didn't really play on TV. Like even... Like they'd play edited versions of Dirty Harry and, you know, Apocalypse Now when I was a kid. But this was a film that was never just on, you know, the movie of the week on TV. You kind of had to go find it. I remember when I was 13, I got my own blockbuster card under my parents' account where I could go and rent stuff. And lucky for me, the people in my local blockbuster didn't give a shit of how old I was. They'd rent me anything. So when I was finally like mobile to go get things, five or six blocks away at my local video store. This was one of the ones that I grabbed first. It was like this and Blade Runner and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like all the things that I wanted to see but never had the opportunity. And I, I tell you, it's one of those things that I think as a child, it doesn't scare you as much because the horror is more uh, atmospheric and less visceral, right? It's not gore. It's not getting hacked off. It's not slashers it really creates a mood and it deals with subjects that, you know, I was not raised religious, so I didn't really think about hell and heaven and priests and, and demons and demonology. But I tell you, once the possession actually happens and the performance and the makeup and the atmosphere, yeah, it scared the shit out of me. But I also found myself just watching the movie from that point when I was a kid. Because I just wanted to see the scary stuff. I didn't care about the mom. I didn't care about the director. I didn't care about any of the adult stories. It was all about what was happening to Reagan. And of course, as I got older, I started appreciating the movie more and more. And right now, it's like, yeah, my top three horror films of all times. I think it probably is with many people's. All right. Dan, Angela, who wants to start? Do you want to go? I'm sorry, my mouth's full. <laughs> Anyway, no, okay, I'll go, I'll go, absolutely. Well, my first experience with this movie was 
five hours ago and I'd never seen this movie. Okay. Antonio, yes. Parker. I don't, know, I don't know if I, I don't think you told me that you've never seen this before no. when we well, decided I mean, to cover it. I didn't bring it up. Usually you do, like, oh, but that's surprising. I do usually. No, that's fair. I know usually. This is a, this is a movie where this is a movie where if anyone told me they have never seen it, I, I'm like, oh my god, really? <laughs> like this is okay, no. This I is mean, one that's of the those movies yeah. for both of y'all, so that's fair. <laughs> uh, I, I, Antonio, I'm, I don't remember the stuff you've listened to of ours. I don't really. I didn't watch scary <laughs> movies growing up. Right. Um, I was I was raised raised religiously uh, Lutheran, but I'm I'm an atheist now. So, but still, that some of that stuff's just ingrained in you. You you know just how it is, but um, you know, my first experience was was today, and I really don't want to say anything because it's we're really just going to talk about it in the movie, but uh, that's all I'm going to say. It was just today. <laughs> all right, Angela, you're wearing your Exorcist shirt, so you de- like. I really <laughs> hope you've seen this movie before today. I have seen it several okay, times the, before. The, the penis, <laughs> the penis isn't on there. Oh no, it's not with the snake around. It's not there. That's important. <laughs> it is important to that statue. Awesome. It is a cool shirt. It is awesome. All right, Angela, what's your history with this? Um, Watching it at friends' houses. Couldn't watch it at my house. It definitely was not one that you, like Antonio said, you just couldn't find it on TV. Like, a lot of movies that I've come across have been, oh, I've accidentally turned this on. Ooh, let's watch this. No, this wasn't. Definitely not one of those. So... Watched it at friends' houses. Scared the shit out of me every time. Still does. I mean... I would have loved to have seen this. I, Been there for that first time of you watching it, just to see your reaction. I was one of the few that actually continued to watch it, even though it scared me. Everybody else is like, I'm done with this. It's too scary. Let's... Get the words! Yeah, and I'm like, you guys are so... And one guy's like, is there blood in it? If there's blood, I can't watch it. I'll pass out. I'm like, shut up. Just a little. But yeah, uh, still love it every time. Still care- scares the shit out of me. You know, I'm I was raised that watching movies like this could you could get possessed through watching it. That mm. you invite that into your house. So I'm still, but still love it every time. Yeah, this movie was the first movie to literally scare the shit out of me. Like I remember being way too young, and you know I've told the story many many times. The fact that you know, my dad, when we would go out and rent movies, he did not care what I watched because it was that one of those things where you just like, son, it's a movie like it's not real. So you just it's OK. But it didn't matter because this movie generally gave me nightmares for quite a while when I was a kid. I probably saw it when I was like eight, eight or nine was like the first time. Uh, but I was like in Tokyo where I was like, I didn't give a shit about the the the, you know, Father Karras and Marin and and. And the mom and stuff. I didn't care about all of that build-up stuff. I wanted to just see the crazy possession scenes with Reagan and just like the transformation of her going from just messing with that Ouija board to the very end. Like that's what we're we were here to see. But yeah, it was it was definitely an awesome experience to go back now because I haven't seen this movie in a very long time. It's probably been I probably was probably in high school when I saw this last. So you know, picking up that beautiful 4K back there. And uh, rewatching it last night and getting to kind of experience it as an adult for the first time and, and kind of experiencing those scenes where I didn't care much about when I was a kid. 
it was it was a good it was a cool experience. But I won't share my complete thoughts on the movie until we get to the end, of course, and I'll be good this time. So Angela doesn't yell at me. But yeah, that's <laughs> that's my history with this movie. He he missed my comment, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> So, yeah, so this movie, of course, was directed by William Friedkin. It was written by William Peter uh, Blatty, who also wrote the novel, which came out in 1971. And uh, it was, was, I guess, not rare for the writers of the book to also write the screenplays to the movies that they're based on. I know that, like, Peter Benchley uh, helped write uh, the script for Jaws, and, you know, Michael Crichton helped write scripts for the Jurassic Park films, and... And, and all that throughout history. But uh, William Peter Blatty was like involved in this movie, like pretty deep, even to the point where William Friedkin kicked him out of the production because it was just getting too intense. Because from different things I've read throughout uh, my life about William Friedkin, he wasn't the easiest person to work with. You know, I don't know fully about his, you know, you, you, you can watch interviews with him on YouTube uh, where he is, he is very, He's very blunt about everything. He doesn't, you know, shy away from uh, sharing his thoughts. If he didn't like something, he's going to tell you. If he, you know, did something that today was considered fucked up, he didn't care if someone knew. Like, he he admitted to everything that he did on set. And the dude was a character. Like, he was an interesting guy. But he he was, you know, for the time, a fantastic director who put out some very memorable movies uh, throughout his career. And, uh... He will be missed. He will be missed. Mm-hmm. So this uh, stars a lot at the time, a lot of like none, not well-known actors. And that was kind of William Friedkin's whole thing. He did not want big time actors. Like I, Jack Nicholson was up for father Karras at one point, but they ended up going with Jason Miller, uh, which was, this was his very first film because he was mostly known for theater. And uh, he's also the father of Jason Patrick, if you didn't know, from uh, The Lost Boys and Speed 2, Cruise Control. (laughs) Son of a bitch. Classic. Yes. Uh, I haven't seen it so long. (laughs) You have, uh, at the time, Ellen Burstyn. She wasn't well known, which is pretty wild to think about because, you know, this movie, I mean, this movie also broadened a lot of these actors' careers. You know, Ellen Burstyn, Linda Blair, uh, Jason Miller. He would come back for the sequel, right? He came back for, like, The Exorcist 3, I believe, which is weird if you know how this movie ends. It's kind of weird. I haven't seen The Exorcist 3 in a very long time, but that was very confusing. Yeah, as it, as as people well know, it, this has spawned a lot of sequels. We got The Exorcist 2, The Heretic, which came out in 76 i believe or like late 70s and we got the exorcist 3 which came out in like 90 which uh that one was the one with um george c scott and uh brad dorf and then we got some prequel movies which was the exorcist the beginning and then they they completely remade that movie like they put a bunch of different cuts in there and then we got dominion it's weird this franchise is weird man we got the tv show which in my opinion uh, probably the greatest sequel to this franchise, or to this singular film, the, at least the first season of the show. Uh, and then we got this year's The Exorcist Believer, which I have not seen yet, so I will not voice my opinions on the movie. Antonio, have you seen it? No, I am going to wait until it like streams because I... 
know too many cinematic podcasters who gave it a thumbs down. Mm-hmm. And in this day and age, with how expensive movie tickets are and gas, it's like, no, I'm not going to waste my money on something that right. everyone says sucks. I'll watch it from home and have some scotch, you know? Yeah, exactly. Make it go down a little bit smoother. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm right there with you. It's like, it's, it's just like the fr- Five Nights at Freddy's thing where I, I was like, I have Peacock. Do I want to spend the same amount of money to go see it in theaters when I could just sit on my couch? I know that's yeah. like, I know a lot of like cinema, like fanatics are just like, oh no, you're killing movie theaters. Sorry. Relax. Sorry. I still go to the theater, but <laughs> hey, sometimes you just got to make that decision. Don't blame me. It wasn't just us that killed movie theaters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah, we had Max von Sydow, who in this movie was playing a probably what a man in his 70s i think he was supposed to be playing a character that was like 30 years older than he actually was he was heavily makeup uh for this movie he was only 43 uh, during filming really no yeah. fucking way to be honest watching this movie as a kid and then seeing oh man i think it was minority report which came out in 2002 and max von Sydow is in that movie looking Almost identical to what he looks exactly like the same in The Exorcist, and I went, "Is this the same guy? Does he age?" And then later <laughs> on in life, I find find out that it was all done with makeup, which is pretty funny. They just never took the makeup off. It, it looks really good. I mean, <laughs> just just, just, they they predicted his future. <laughs> it's like this is what you're going to look like when you get older. That's great. Uh, we have L, uh, Lee J. Cobb who played. Uh, the Lieutenant Kinderman. We have Kitty Wynn who played Sharon. Well, Sharon, that was the housekeeper, right? One of the housekeepers. We have Jack McGowan uh, who played Burke Dennings. Uh, Linda, Bra- uh, Linda Blair, of course, who plays Reagan McNeil. Uh, we actually had a priest, a couple priests in this movie, actual priests. Uh, Father William Mc, Mc... Oh my God, I can't read today. Father, Father William O'Malley who played Father Joseph Dyer who was the one who... Uh, pretty much talks uh Karis into doing the exorcist like kind of brings him in and into the whole into the fold there's a lot of uh other characters like we had a lot of the doctors and we, we don't need to go too deep into the extent of the cast also mercedes mccambridge who plays the voice of the demon pazuzu who definitely needs a shout out because the voice is fantastic yes it is weird fact though linda blair was nominated this movie was nominated as a supporting actress at at the Oscars but that was before people knew or the voters knew that she wasn't the demon voice and so when it came out that Mercedes McCambridge was the voice of the demon uh, it kind of ruined her chances of winning the Oscar that year because the fact that 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 was I think mostly why uh, she got nominated which I thought was pretty pretty interesting to read she also wasn't credited in the original cut, as we stated earlier in the show. It yes. wasn't until the 2000 extended cut, which is the version I watched, which is uh, if you get this beautiful 4K, you get the director's extended edition and then, of course, the theatrical cut. And just watch the director's extended edition. It's well worth it. Uh, but yeah, she wasn't credited until that cut was uh, came out in, I think it was 2000 or 2001, which is just mind-blowing. Like, if someone does work for you... <laughs> What like, <laughs> eh, give her the give them the credit that they deserve. All right. Also, there was uh, there was the you know the shot of like the white demon face that you see like randomly throughout yeah, the movie. Yeah, uh, that was the original actress who was 
going to play Reagan. Uh, Elaine Dietz, who again, another uh, actress who was not credited for her performance in this movie, because I guess according to her, she was involved in a lot of the demonic possession parts of the movie. So anytime like when Reagan is tied to the bed and doing crazy stuff, you know, supposedly it was her, but there's like no one's ever cleared that up or people have just denied it. I guess that's something William Friedkin kind of just doesn't admit to. As I stated before, he likes to admit to a lot of stuff, but I guess that was something he just won't admit to because he pretty much came out and said, yeah, Linda Blair was the one who was, she was the one he wanted the most for Reagan, uh, which was, uh, thank God for her mom, because her mom was the one who brought her in to be like, this is, she really wants to be in your movie. She's read the book. I guess they had a really intimate conversation about the whole thing. Uh, this girl's only like 11, 12 years old, and they were having some weird conversations uh, about like masturbation and stuff like that. It was just weird, man. Movie making was weird back then. I think it's weird now, but it's just depends yeah. on who you got making the fucking movie. Yeah. That's weird. That's fucking weird. <laughs> As I said, Willie Freakin was a character. We also have Ann Miles, who is an uncredited... Uh, uh, she did the, the spider walk down the stairs, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, I guess that was a whole controversy where they when they did the, the spider walk down the stairs, they were going to have this harness attached to one of the actresses, but I guess they couldn't make it look real enough. So they... So Ann Miles is an actual contortionist where she okay. could actually do the spider walk without all of the, the safety regulations and everything. But then William Freakin just decided to cut it. He didn't, he, it wasn't in the theatrical cut of the film. Yeah, and so that was it. another scene that was added to the uh, extended edition later on, which is funny because when I would watch this on TV, I think it was on like H, it, it would pop up on like HBO randomly back in like the early 2000s. And this was the cut. I swear they put this cut on HBO because I remember the spider walk every time. And when I read it wasn't in the original cut, I'm like, well, I've seen it every single time. That's weird. That's odd. It's like the it's like the opening scene with. Um, oh, what the fuck is his name? I can't think of it. Lost World. The Hunter. Oh, name, oh, like, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. The, the beginning scene that's only in the TV version and the boardroom scene that's only in the TV version, but in yeah. no other cuts. Well, you're yeah. watching the TV version. You're like. Wait a second. I've watched this movie a thousand times. How have I never seen what this? What is this? <laughs> um, so also, fun fact about the white demon face, uh, that was a rejected uh, Pazuzu face. Like, that was the re- one of the rejected um, art you know, looks for Pazuzu, like when Reagan Thank is goodness. possessed. It's still terrifying. Like, when it just pops up but on the screen. It just like, oh. cuts in. Like... But it's not... <laughs> but it's like... Eerie is, smile. That's good. Yeah. It's great. Uh, this was, of course, a, a film that has been considered a cursed film. They're, they actually did an entire episode on uh, the Shutter series cursed films, uh, which is really good. You should check it out. I won't go too deep into it, but a lot of the stuff, the fact of like people dying during the filming, after the filming, uh, people's family members dying during and after the filming. It's just crazy. You had permanent injuries. Uh, for actors like Linda Blair got a uh, a permanent spinal injury during the scene where she is flopping up and down on the bed. And then, of course, Ellen Bernstein, uh, Burstyn gets thrown across the room in one of the scenes and uh, seriously permanently injured her coccyx. So she was on crutches for like the rest of the uh, the filming. It's it's crazy. Really watch that episode of Curse Films. There's a lot. It goes really deep into all of the the different stuff 
that happened during the filming. Yes, Dan. Someone else, someone else to plug because it's the only episode of her show I listened to. But what fear the lullaby? Lullaby the fear. Lullaby the fear. Get it right. That's the podcast. She's been on here before. I don't remember her show, so I'm Ashley. sorry. She has no one talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. talking about cursed films. So yeah. just to plug somebody else. Yeah, her show is fantastic. So yeah, make sure to check that yes. out. And uh, yeah, so you know, it's just a lot of weird things that just happened during the filming, and the fact that it add, add on to. You know, William Freakin's antics and Warner Brothers kind of breathing down their necks because this originally had a budget of $2 million and it ended up costing $12 million, which mm. which in today's money is like $25 million or 20. Yeah, it's like in the 20s. Holy but God. overall, over the course of its life, it has made over $400 million. Mm-hmm. It is uh, it was before it in 2017, it was the highest grossing rated R film uh, horror uh, rated our horror film. Uh, so that's a, a long time. 1973 to 2017. Bravo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it also, but it uh, was, but it got broken by, I think the sixth sense in 1999 as the highest grossing supernatural horror film. Mm-hmm. Only because he sees dead people. Yeah. Bruce Willis. Got it. <laughs> no. Was he dead? Poor Bruce Willis. Uh. <laughs> he didn't have his multi-pass. That's no. why. He got diagnosed <laughs> with dementia. Yeah, that's really yeah, sad. That's really, yeah, that is very sad. He'll he'll always be uh, my childhood. Uh, Die Hard Christmas. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Christmas, dude. Absolutely. Die Hard <laughs> all December. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, the music for this movie, of course, the iconic Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield, which is like the the main theme to this movie. Uh, but the the composer for this movie was Jack Nitchy. Uh, he did one who flew over the cuckoo's nest and that's about it that I know. Uh, but th- there was a lot of different uh, things like freaking liked classical music. So of course you get a lot of classical music put into this film. You have the iconic tubular bells, you have Nietzsche's uh, score. So a lot of different hands in the pot when it came to uh, the music for this film, uh, but it's all iconic. And to be honest, from what I've read, there was only 17 minutes of music in this film. This is an over two That's hour it? movie and there was only 17 minutes of actual music, which is just mind blowing. Didn't even notice. Because, I mean, oh, there's so yeah. much screaming and stuff. Sorry, go ahead. Or just oh, background said, noise. Well, Sorry. yeah, that's kind of part of the mood, right? Is yeah. uh, Alien is the very same way mm-hmm. where, yeah, it's Jerry Goldsmith music, but there's so much silence and they focus on the creaks of the floorboards or the pounding of the bed and the breathing of, of Reagan when she's possessed that you don't need a haunting score over that. Like that's creating the terror and the suspense right there. It's terrifying. Yeah. There was a spot at the very beginning though. Like you couldn't hear anything. It was just quiet. Dude's walking and people are doing stuff in the background. I'm like, nothing. I thought that you had turned it down. Mute. And scary. didn't turn the volume back up because I'm like, there's no music, there's no no sounds of him walking, there's nothing. But I think it, I, I think they were doing it on purpose because yeah, he's supposed to be kind of in his own head. Like, yeah, my most effective po- po- use of sound in this movie. I'll get to it later, but I don't know if it's everybody else's. But I don't think there's any music in it at all either. It's just the sound. I love that you mentioned that opening part, too, because that's very uh, new Hollywood. You see Freed can do it. You see 
Terrence Malick do it for sure in his films, uh, Days of Heaven, uh, just lots of sounds of nature, sounds of humans, birds walking, essentially. The idea is they want to take you out of the feeling that you're actually watching a movie, and it's part of the immersive experience, right? And William Peter Blatty also directed films in the 70s, and I feel he took a lot of pages out of Friedkin's book. He directed a film called The Ninth Configuration, very surreal movie based on one of his books, and it's the same. It's a lot of what seem like basic everyday sounds that you would hear in your kitchen or on the street, but by playing with the soundtrack levels of the different tracks where like a bird will be louder than footsteps, it's giving you this false perception of reality, and that's what's going to build the tension. And then he pretty much does it exactly again in Exorcist 3 because he actually directed the the sequel himself, mm-hmm. wrote it himself, directed it himself, and he takes a lot of cues from what Friedkin did and a lot of the new Hollywood guys did too. So I love that technique because I think, and I've heard you guys talk about it before in like films of the 80s and 90s for sure, everything has to be so uh, immersive when it comes to soundtrack and special effects and sound effects and just everything has to just essentially stimulate every orifice in your body or else people will think that they've been lacked a cinematic experience. And that's why I dig films like this because new Hollywood kind of got it. They're like, okay, well how about we create an environment first to tell our story in and not put story behind the cinematic bullshit that we're going to hit you with for the rest of the day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So this movie was released a day after Christmas in 1973, Yay. which is just Merry Christmas. Here's a terrifying <laughs> movie. <laughs> but yeah, like, uh, it... sorry. Uh, no, I was say at least it wasn't on Christmas. But... That would have even been better. Hey, what do you want to do for Christmas? Let's go see The Exorcist. (laughs) (laughs) But as uh, as Antonio stated earlier in the episode, the fact of like, uh, you know, moviegoers go in and see this movie and yeah, you get the stories of like, you know, people getting sick while they see it and having to leave early and passing out and stuff, which is funny uh, to think about because I could believe it back then with this movie. Just even rewatching it, because like not because there are some parts where you watch it now and you're like, ooh, like kind of like it kind of still gets you, it affects you, and uh, you know, of course, we got a lot of that when Terrifier two came out, where it was the, the the same responses, like people were getting sick in the theater and people were passing out, and it, I feel like after seeing Terrifier two, I'm not gonna go into it, but like I feel like it's, I I don't believe it as much because of just the time, and I feel like a lot more people now are. Uh, accustomed to like that sort of violence in in film, where I think back in 1973, this was so new and like people hadn't seen anything like this before. Where I could believe those stories. Where I'm like, I could believe someone passed, like people just passed out in the theater or got sick. Uh, there's actually a story that Ellen Burstyn actually went to a screening of this, and uh, she saw someone get up, uh, not looking so good, and she followed that person, and the person passed out. And she uh, went to to assist, but she was she had to get somebody else to to help the person because they didn't want she didn't want the person to wake up and see her and think it's like oh my god like just seeing I'm her on the, the screen like oh yeah well is this real like so she yeah I I thought that was an interesting story to read. Well, it makes me think of when you know 
even going from the late sixties, and I'm not an expert on this. I used to know more about it, but when Night of the Living Dead came out, and there's the one specific scene after the truck fire and they're eating all the intestines, which was like a really shocking moment scene at the time for films. I mean, there were probably other movies that did stuff similar before, but that's like the big one that kind of like pushed the rating system to exist and all that stuff. And it was only five years later we got The Exorcist. And while I don't think it's necessarily maybe any more graphic. I don't think it was a common thing, even at that time, five years later, it's just how it's filmed in this movie. It's just no. so well done that I even told Victor, because this, again, my first time watching this, is I think if they released that movie on, pretty much as it is today, it would still be a shocking film. Yeah. yeah. So. Absolutely. Oh, Antonio, have you read the book? I, you know, I've never read the first one, but I did read Legion, which was the basis of the third one. And that's an interesting question because it kind of can get me into the segue that I was going to save for later. But there is a certain way that William Peter Blatty writes where he actually does include some great moments of, of comedy and some quips between people with dialogue. And the dialogue in this movie has mostly been reserved for Reagan, the doctor, the mother, the priest, and the side characters that we get, most specifically uh, Kinderman, played by Lee J. Uh, Cobb, Karis, and Dyer, where they do kind of like fuck around with each other and have some jokes and little bits like that. There's a lot of that in Exorcist 3, because Exorcist 3 actually brings those characters back. So uh, Kinderman is actually played by George C. Scott in the third one. And then Father Dyer is characters in the third one, too. And in mm. that book, it's a lot of that. It, it really builds more uh, connections between these characters where you care about them more. And that's one of the things that I, I, I guarantee was probably in the book that did not make it to the screen is that Kinderman, Dyer, and Karis all have a lot tighter relationship and a lot tighter uh, dialogue with each other. Like, there, there's more in there. But you can't put that in the movie when you're really trying to sell the movie on the scares and on the possession. So I feel they saved a lot of that for the third one, where they really build those relationships up again. But my mom always told me that when she read the book, because she read the book, just like a Stephen King book, the scarier the scary scenes are actually scarier because you're imagining them and they're very descriptive. But the let's say um, parts that are building the story, the prose you could say, kind of are lengthened and, and drawn out. You have to get through a lot of character development before you get to the scares. So when you break that down into a film, especially if you're trying to keep it at two plus hours and not go Godfather length, you really have to kind of pick and choose what you're going to put on screen. Right. This was up for 10 Oscars in 1974, uh, nominated for Best Picture, Director, Actress, Supporting Actress, Supporting Actor, Screenplay, which it won from William Peter, uh, Peter Blatty, uh, Best Art Direction, Cinematography, Film Editing, and Best Sound, which it also won for. So, uh, and, yeah. and to be honest, it's, it's pretty shocking because you don't see horror films getting nominated at the Oscars anymore. Like this was just, no, this was, uh, you know, a lot. I think horror was still kind of not, 
accepted as much even back then, but like I think it was just such such a unique film that I think that's why it got all these accolades. And then, you know, we got to see some horror get uh nominated in the future, but then like once you get to like the 2000s, like horror just kind of falls off when it comes to getting those like being recognized in those big accolades and we've even seen it uh recently with just movies just being completely snubbed at the Oscars even though they are in my opinion well worth getting nominated for something and uh yeah it's sad horror needs to be recognized more in my opinion like you know there's a lot of great you know it's not just all about the blood and guts and all that stuff you know there's definitely great stories out there that just don't get recognized because it's considered a horror film and and that sucks that just the word horror kind of just turns the voters away when, in my opinion, I think it's one of the most popular genres uh, out there. Yeah, that's an interesting case because, I mean, if you think about it, one of the films that swept the Oscars, won all five categories, was Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. which, yeah. you know, it, people are on the fence of that. Is it a horror film or is it a psychological thriller? I usually lean more towards psychological thriller. But I tell you, in my blockbuster growing up, it was in the horror section. So, again, like, genre is subjective, right, to whoever is presenting it. You know, whether you're going to present it in the theater as a horror film or put it on the horror shelf or in the drama shelf of your video store, it's it's all subjective. I think that this is definitely a case of a film that really peaked early in the sense of how horror was going to be a thing cinematically again because before the exorcist there were some like let's say european horror films that were spooky for example uh the innocence with deborah kerr is a supernatural thriller that's really really great but for the most part up until 1972-73 with the exception of maybe roseberry's baby people were thinking horror films as like hammer films frankenstein wolfman movies whatever cheesy sci-fi b movies uh we didn't have Stephen King writing novels yet to get people excited about suspense and horror suspense. So it was definitely, it was what better way to start that horror movement than this film. But I also think it set the watermark so high that films released after it desperately tried to meet that level. And, and a lot of them didn't. And it took a long time before let's say horror became respectable again, if you know what I mean. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's 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 crazy where we're at still today uh with this genre and just yeah, the fact of like, you know, Sansa the Lambs doing what it did in 91 and and kind of having that like, well wh- well is it really horror or not and, you know, like I said, it's kind of split down the middle in what people think of it. And I feel that goes with a lot of movies today uh or just throughout time. But yeah, it sucks that you just get this kind of sour connotation on on something just because it's always grouped up with other things like yeah you have your just really just over the top horror movies with the blood and guts and and just overdone gore where the story is very minimal yeah but and then they're grouped with something that is just like beautiful storytelling also with a lot of horror aspects and in imagery and stuff like that but they're but they're like together like why why no you got to separate those things and you got to see them as 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 different things instead of kind of grouping. Okay. It's a horror movie. Just throw it in that pile over there. Right. And I think that's where like the Oscars, instead of like playing the game and paying real attention to the quality of filmmakers and films and stuff like that. Remember, it's only like since 2010, I think that we've had 
10 best picture nominees before that it was always five you know and those five it had to be like a period piece or some kind of you know emotional drama or social awareness movie there was no room for horror and i think we've seen films like let's say get out and other movies be able to break that mold because the academies instead of saying all right we should really start giving horror a bigger seat at the table we're just going to create more nominations in best picture so films like that can make it in there and people won't won't give us so much shit about what the the 65 years before that where we just kind of said fuck you to horror movies right i i think it's kind of bullshit that they do that but as i become more immersed into cinematic podcasting i've always been into movies and cinema accolades mean less and less and less to me because some of the Mm -hmm. movies that i think are the best and the most entertaining and the most relevant and thought-provoking weren't nominated for anything weren't even recognized and that's why i have a cult film podcast so i can talk about these things you know this one made a lot of money so it wouldn't be considered a cult film but think of it if it didn't make all that money it was the exact same quality and standard that it is today it would be considered a cult film it would be something that found its audience later instead of being the one that kind of broke the cherry on the horror genre in the 70s right absolutely all right. Well, are you? Are we all ready to go through the plot of The Exorcist? I think so. All right. Let's I'm go. ready. So, of course, the opening to this movie is I like the the quick shot of the O'Neill house before we then travel across the world uh, to northern Iraq, which all of this was actually filmed in Iraq. Uh, this was, Good. you know, during a, a, a it was during a kind of okay time over there for us uh but i guess uh william friedkin pretty much was like we well, know we need to get this done now like we we might not have a chance to go back there so we need to make sure that everything we get everything kind of in one go and so pretty much everything you see here is all in one shoot pretty much not in one shot but in one like you know i don't Session. know how long it was uh yeah it took them to film it but uh it's great because it's all you know it's it's not a set. This is real, you know, mountainsides, you know, desert. It just looks, it just, and that's what's great about stuff like this and filmmaking like this where it, you can feel it. You can see that, uh, you know, the dust flying is not just somebody throwing it into a fan. That's just real. They find something in the sand and it's like a small figurehead of some sort. You don't know it's a demon. Well, I guess, I mean, we all know it is, but it's something unique and it kind of it kind of scares father Marin, who is our the first like main character that we meet he he yeah so he once he finds this thing he's like oh shit i gotta figure out what i'm doing here i gotta get out of here so he then travels across the dig site and then he that's when you see the pazuzu statue for the very first time i love the uh the shot here of him kind of standing on the cliffside and then the statue you know you know, being uh, it's kind of like they're facing each other, and that's kind yeah. of uh, um, it, it's because it, it's showing you what you're going to see later on in the film. Like you're, you, he is facing off against Pazuzu here, where because that's what you're going to see later on in the film. So he pretty much states he's got to go home, and that means we're going to be traveling all the way to Georgetown, which is right outside of uh, Washington D.C. 
And this is where we meet Chris O'Neill. And there's something going on in the attic. But what is it? Is it rats? Not according to uh, not according to the housekeeper there. No rats. No rats. Well, can you put traps up no there? Rats. No, no rats. No rats. I don't know what kind of fucking rats they have in seventies Washington. <laughs> Dude, I'll tell you this. This play, Do you know what? When it, they were filming this, this looked like a lot of the exterior shots. This did not look like it took place in the states. So this was Washington. The outside shots were in Washington D.C. I believe it. I'm just saying, like the way it felt, it yeah. it felt like London to me. It felt like England. Mm. That's that's what it felt like. Yeah, I, I could see it. Just the way that the the buildings looked. Yeah, yeah. Like it it doesn't look like your standard. Like you know, when you think of like I'm thinking of DC, even in the 70s, it just didn't give that vibe to me. Mm. But I can see it. So we find out that Chris O'Neill is an actress, and she's on set filming a like riot scene. Well, not a riot scene, but a protest scene. Political protesters, right? And this is where we meet. Uh, also <laughs> meet her very alcoholic director. Uh, it's McNeil. What, did what, I, what am I saying? O'Neill? Yeah, it's McNeil. It is McNeil. You're right. April O'Neill. April. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I think that's what he was thinking. I was 100%. <laughs> I mean, she has rats in her in her attic. So, Splinter? Yeah. 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 True. <laughs> Maybe she has turtles in her basement. Oh, Damn, turtles yes. up there so looking Chris, for rats again. Yes, I mean, thank you, Angela. Chris McNeil. I thought I heard you did say Did I say, it did I say O'Neill at the beginning, too, when I said the O'Neill? I, did I no, say O'Neill house? I, no. You said it, it right once, at least. Yeah, so that's why I didn't know. Who. <laughs> but then I'm like, well, maybe I'm just hearing oh, things. So Lord. I was like waiting for you to say it again. I was like hoping that I you know, hadn't heard you wrong. Oh, man. It, cool. It's okay. <laughs> but we meet uh, her wonderfully drunk director, Burke Dennings. <laughs> This is a goofy looking fucker, dude. Like, <laughs> to be honest, I don't remember hearing his name in the scene. So no. later on, when you hear Reagan, when Reagan and Chris have the conversation about like, oh, you know, you really like Burke. She's like, well, yeah, I like Burke. And he's like, oh, like you like like Burke. And you like like but Burke? Then I like re- daddy? You like yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, no, I love your daddy. But but then it gets weird because then I find out Burke is the drunk director. And I was like, really, Chris? Really? Oh, All right. It's massive do not want, but you know, All whatever right. you're into, lady. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's a subtle stab at the Hollywood casting system, you know, where mm. we've all heard stories of like how casting couch directors and mm-hmm. uh, there's obviously interesting things going on with the dad. You know, he's kind of a piece of shit, but maybe he didn't want to be involved in that lifestyle. Right. If you've read books about new Hollywood in the 70s, especially, let's say, Robert Evans and everything that was going on at Paramount. Yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me if there is like a darker subtext to that story that we're just not seeing in the movie, but the movie's expecting us to kind of know what they're talking about, especially during the time it came out in. That's the way I perceive it. All right. Yeah, I could see that. I, I mean, that's a great point. Because to be honest, I forgot whether I didn't realize that the father was still alive. Well, like they mentioned it, and I was like, "Where the fuck is this guy?" I was expecting him to show up. Well, when they have point. that conversation about her and Burke, I thought the dad was dead. I That's completely true. forgot that, that the context. dad was just not around. Because then you get the scene right after that where she has the conversation on the phone with she's trying to get in communication with him on, like, on her birthday. Yeah, yeah, he can't even call her on her birthday, and they're like, "Oh, so he is alive?" Because <laughs> I think my wife is like, "Is he dead?" And I was like, "I think so." And then that next scene, I'm like, <laughs> "Okay, no, he's not dead." Uh, Falling from beyond the grave. He's just so forgettable. <laughs> <laughs> he was supposed to be more prominent in the movie, the father, but I guess, uh, cause I guess he's, he is more involved in the book 
but I guess that would have just added way too much time. Right. Uh, but also, Father Karras is at this shot, or is at the the protest shoot for the movie, and he is smiling yeah. really creepily in the crowd. Like, he's got this weird, like, <laughs> and I was like, but, Father Karras, somebody needs to show you how to smile, bro. You should need to look at the it, mirror. What is happening with your face? <laughs> but sometimes he just looks like, he just looks pissed about it. And he's like, yeah. fucking kids, <laughs> you don't know shit. Oh. <laughs> uh, so we, that, this is where we hear the the theme for the very first time as Chris is walking home, and this, of course this theme is so iconic. And she passes by an alleyway where Father Karras is talking to somebody else, and she's trying to listen in, but you're getting sounds of like traffic going by and stuff, so she can't really make out what he's talking about. I thought a plane was landing in the alley. I mean, you know? the airport's right there, so it could have been a plane going over. <laughs> and, yeah, <laughs> this is where we finally meet Reagan played by Linda Blair and she's adorable. And uh, when I guess when William Friedkin cast her, they wanted to find, I guess the description was like, find a, find a young girl who's, who's cute, but not overly attractive. And I was like, that's weird. She is a child. Oh, he is from Hollywood. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck? You're not supposed yeah. to, you're not supposed to be looking at that. I mean, I, I mean, unless <laughs> I've, I don't I don't think that's what he was doing, but that's just just a weird descriptions that directors and producers yeah. and studio heads are looking at. They're like back in those. I mean, even still today, I mean, look at what Weinstein was doing for decades. So, yeah, it's just that's just yeah. weird shit, man. Yeah. So, yeah, we meet her. She's just a typical kid trying to live her life amongst a the, you know, being in the shadows of her very famous mother. You know, she's even like on the cover of magazines with her mom. And I love when she's like, Oh, you're reading that crap. And it's like, that's not even a good picture of you. That's like, <laughs> but why? why is but she even on help. there? But she keeps going on, on with it. She's like, you, you look so mature. And then she says something about you wouldn't have looked like that. If my, um, makeup artist wasn't there. And I'm like, what, what? <laughs> well, but then like at her core though, and Reagan, when you get a lot of her stuff is she's just like a lot of the time, she's just sort of being a kid. Yeah. Which is great. Like, she doesn't seem like overly into that side of it. It's like, I'm mother, I'm out to pound She wants a horse. <laughs> and I want to give her that horse. <laughs> so we see the the rich side of things. So we see Chris, you know, she's a she's a rich actress. She lives in a very nice part of town. And then we she's see... She's sleeping with the director. I'm sorry. Supposedly. <laughs> then we see Father Karras, who lives in a rougher part of town. He lives with his the mother. Well, no, he lives with his mother. Oh, does he? Okay, yes. I thought he was seeing yeah, his mother. With- yeah, I believe he lives with his mother, and then he just ends up leaving her because he's got to go for a job or something. Or, uh, oh, see, I thought he lived in the rectory because oh, they maybe. have they have they have a comments about that saying that oh he lives in the rectory behind your house and he only goes and visits the mother. Uh, you know, I got it, confused. It, this is also something no, but no, it's a good point to make because. Uh, if you've ever seen this just in normal TV with uh, the 4.3, not widescreen, where they pan and scanned it, you miss a lot of that room where, like, he enters the apartment of his mom through the bedroom. So it makes you think that that is his bedroom, but it's right. not. That's just how you get into the apartment. Okay. But in the widescreen version, you actually see how the rooms are divided as he exits the building. That's, that's her apartment, and he lives in the rectory. Okay. 
I got confused. I, just, I thought he lived there, and then he just like leaves in the middle of yeah. the night to go do some like some job. I don't. I don't know. Because he threw his his coat on the bed, like right. Oh, that's yeah, it's, very, it's a very familiar place for him, obviously. But that's one of the reasons why he doesn't want to be the church psychiatrist anymore. It's because it's taking him away from the things that he cares about, like his okay. mom, mm-hmm. and, and it's just becoming too much of a burden. So that, that's again, that's really easy to miss. And again, we've got two cuts of this movie. Maybe there's more that we did not see on the cutting room floor that helps explain that part better. But it's under my, it's in my understanding that, yeah, that's probably a neighborhood he grew up in, but he doesn't live with her anymore. And that is why she is so resentful against him when he comes to visit her. And Pazuzu uses that resentment to taunt him later on when he's possessed Reagan. Right. I can see that. Yeah, you find and you find out little things like there's a little uh, Easter eggs for him around the apartment. Um, you find out he was a boxer at one point uh, where you do get the shot of him actually boxing at the gym. Um, yeah. And I think his uncle also mentions something about it, too. Yeah. Uh, after they go to the hospital when she is uh, found at her apartment. Yeah, he was rude. The, <laughs> the, the uncle? uncle? Yeah. <gasps> yeah. He's, He's like, so, he said something about. Not him not looking like a boxer. Like, fuck you, man. He's got a bout against Rocky next week. Leave him the fuck alone, dude. (laughs) I was like, this movie's just Pazuzu versus, you know... Rocky. No, Pazuzu versus Rocky. Other Karis? Yeah, Karis versus Pazuzu. Rocky versus Pazuzu. What kind of spinoff is this? (laughs) Just because because of him in his um, athletic attire. Imagine that, though. It was a Rocky sequel where he has to fight possessed father Karis. well no 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 well he just fights pazuzu like the the animated statue but like he like like blesses the gloves and holy water and pazuzu's got a boxing glove on like his dick (laughs) part of his statue (laughs) he's the three-armed man (laughs) oh lord (laughs) so we 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 go back to the mcneil house (laughs) and this is when we're introduced to the Ouija board and you know, we've seen many, many movies now where Ouija boards are not good. Like you mess with a Ouija board, bad things happen. We've covered, uh, we covered a lot of the movies of the conjuring universe that had to do with the Ouija board. They have Ouija movies, but this was like the movie that really introduced us to the fact that like the Ouija board conjures evil. Like I don't, I, 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 I'm not sure if, other films had done that in the past, but I think this was like that first movie that really used it as a night ne- in a negative way because Ouija boards had been just a, a game that you could literally go to Walmart or, you know, it was in a cardboard yeah. box and you just, it was a game and Milton Bradley or something. Had yeah. It. yeah. It was like Parker, Parker, Parker brothers. Parker brothers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Parker. Yeah. 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 Me and my brother just making Ouija boards. It's <laughs> our family trade. Um, but yeah, this was, uh, this was interesting to see like the kind of the, the origin of the evil side of, of this wooden board. And this is where we, you know, Reagan talks about captain Howdy, which I could just imagine captain Howdy being, um, kind of the opposite of Beetlejuice where like Beetlejuice is like there to help you like get rid of demons. And <laughs> captain Howdy's like, I can help you get demons. Dude. I'm captain Howdy. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious. I didn't know. Like, is, is that like the like definitive, like, 
she got it. She knows she got it through the Ouija board, or is it like a red herring thing? Like she so she invited board. she invited him through the Ouija board. Okay, so that's like the actual yeah. like in okay. He All was I using was Captain Spaulding. I just saw the shark from Toy Story. I'm Woody. Howdy, howdy, howdy. (laughs) (laughs) No, but she was that he was using the name Captain Howdy to kind of, you know, make her comfortable because I don't think he was be like, hey, my name's Pazuzu. What's going on? Like, uh, that doesn't (laughs) sound scary at all. (laughs) A demon that was allegedly from Iraq doesn't know shit about cowboys and Howdy. So I don't know. Oh, he's been know. around forever, though. He's been around since before the dawn of time. He's mm. a, well, everything. This is something, too, about that, that uh, before I saw this movie, my mom told me, because you know she had played with Ouija boards, they mentioned a very interesting piece of Ouija board lore that I, I'm not sure a lot of people know, and that is you're never supposed to do it by yourself. And that's why when she brings up the Ouija board, oh. she's like, wait, wait, you need me to help. You need two people. And Reagan's like, no, I use it by myself all the time. And she's like, oh, okay. Like, even Chris, who probably has never fucked with the Ouija board, even she knew. It was like, wait, don't you need two people to mm-hmm. do this? And so no, by channeling that second person, okay. which turns out to be Captain Howdy, that's why Reagan is so easily possessed, mm-hmm. because there is not another person sharing the uh, responsibilities of operating the Ouija board. Right. Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, with other movies that use it, it kind of it conjures evil, but it's not taking over one specific over. person. It's just kind yeah. of releasing it into the environment uh, where this, yeah, it's just kind of going. It's all of the energy is going into Reagan. Yep, that's a hundred percent the point. Which I guess you have to be keen to catch that because uh, it, it, it's very prominent in the book. But I know lots of people seen this movie who never caught that. I didn't think of that either. So Father Karras wants out of the church. More, I think he just wants out of being the psychiatrist, uh, as Antonio said earlier, because uh, just, you know, things with his mom and all that stuff. We get the whole thing with Reagan's dad not calling her on her birthday. We already mentioned that. But also the fact that this is when Reagan starts to, she mentions for the first time that her bed has been shaking, but you don't see it. She just mentions it in passing, and it's kind of just like, yeah. she says it, and they're like, oh, okay, I'm just... It's probably yeah, just a weird she, nightmare or something. She comes in. The giant rats moving her bed around. The mom gets woken up with the phone and she's like, what are you doing in here? Oh, yeah. She was sleeping in her bed. She's like, oh, my yeah. bed was shaking. Yeah. yeah. Was like, I'm sleeping, oh, mommy. Don't worry about. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> you know, that's, it, it happens every night. Weird, weird nightmare. Something, yeah. Just take some heroin and go to bed, son, honey. You'll be all right. <laughs> so this is when Chris hears things in the attic again. And she's like, what the hell is going on? So she actually goes up there. And of course, she goes up there with a, you know, the candlestick and everything goes up there. And it's a great Flames shot that we're, yeah, she's, she's going through looking, looking everywhere. And then you get that big burst of flame that comes out and it scares the shit out of her. Cause as soon as that happens, she turns around and the house and the, one of the, uh, the housekeeper guys there, he's like, no rats, no rats. Cause she sees the traps <laughs> and there's there. None of them are set off. Yes, Dan. Oh no! I was gonna make a reference. What is it? The I can't remember the show. Is it the Monsters or the Adams Family? That's got the dragon that lives under their stairwell. Monsters. Monsters. Yeah, that was Monsters. Monsters. Sorry. Monsters. There is a show called I Monsters. Know it's a you. <laughs> yes, yeah, different movie, different show entirely. Whenever we cover that show, there's a trivia bit about that. But yes, that's what I thought of. It's either that or it's some <laughs> demon beast, like just a beast lives in there upstairs. Like these rats are huge, <laughs> breathing fire on us and whatnot. So. We then go to 
the church where there's one of the one of the fathers is bringing in flowers into one of the chapels and he notices one of the Mary statues has been defiled. It's like got, you know, that somebody had put like devilish figures uh, on it. And I guess there was supposed to be more to this whole thing about like, I guess there was multiple churches that had statues defiled, but I guess that would have also made the movie longer than it needed to be. And so this was the only real shot we got. It's a huge plot point in Exorcist 3 mm. where multiple statues are defiled that way. So it's one of the things that carries on, I think, since it didn't make its way into this first one. And Blatty was very disappointed about that. When he got his chance to make his own Exorcist, he put that shit in there to be like, I'm connecting this story, all the things that were taken out. Yeah, that's definitely one I would love to cover at some point. The Exorcist 3 is, especially when when you talk about like Exorcist sequels like that, people put that at like the top. Uh, Exorcist 2, not so much. The Cult Worthy Podcast. Join me, Antonio Palacios, each week as I guide you through a never-ending sea of obscure cinema and cult-worthy gems that deserve a rediscovery. Find me on all listening platforms and at thecultworthy.com. The Cult Worthy Podcast. Join us. Face it, dating sucked in your 20s, gets worse in your 30s, and your 40s, forget it. It's a cesspool out there, and we're your flotation device. Join us weekly for saucy chat, ridiculous love gurus, and MILF-worthy fun to spice up your life. The MILF MILF and and Me Podcast. Podcast. Every Wednesday on your favorite pod platform. And the MILFandMePod.com. The MILF MILF and and Me Podcast. So this is when Reagan gets sent to the doctor to get tests done. And this is when you start to see her change, you start to see her attitude change. And, um, you know, she's, you know, they're trying to take her temperature and she's like ripping it out of her mouth. Like, I don't want to do that. And just she's acting very different. And all the doctor goes, eh, it's kind of just I think she's going through puberty. I think it's just she's, you know, she's going through some sort of change. And that's just normal for kids this age to to do stuff like that. And she's like, but she's never done this before. Like, it seems very drastic how she could be so calm and you know, and now she's like yelling and I guess she was swearing at the, the doctor because has, mm-hmm. has she ever swore before? And like, no. And then I love her. She's like, what did she say? And she's like, he's like, I, you know, just some things. And she's like, no, seriously, what did she say? <laughs> and uh, some pretty nasty stuff. <laughs> um, and then pretty much the doctor's like, yeah, just give her some Ritalin. That'll fix her. 1973, everybody. <laughs> Just want to mention it, that's when this movie came out. But that's listen, normal it's for the time. Still, it's no, to still be honest, up until today. I was in like middle school, which is, I mean, I'm I'm younger than everybody here, so my middle school was like mid two thousands. Uh, that was still a thing. Like I I knew I had so many friends that were on Ritalin. Like it was just a yeah. If you were high strung, go to the doctor. You're getting Ritalin. I mean, and even now they they still try and do that, but the whole not lot doctors not listening to females' problems it right. it still happens now. Also, doctors who just yeah, it just also didn't understand a lot of stuff. Yeah, because uh, he he even mentioned the fact that like oh maybe she's going through uh, she's going through depression, and Chris is like she's she she doesn't have depression. He's like, well, that's not part of my field anyway, so you'd have to go to somebody else. And it's like, what the. <laughs> okay. Sounds like, right. sounds like somebody's a pill pusher. And again, he, and again, she even mentions the fact she's like, "Well, should I get a psychiatrist?" And he's like, "No, I'll just give her a Ritalin right now." I'm like, oh, okay. He, he probably was getting um, compensation. 
From the drug company? From the drug company. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly what I was thinking. They, they do that now. Bought and yes. paid for. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I got I got to mention, there's a very interesting uh, dynamic to this particular scene and how the demonic possession transpires is that in traditional demonology, especially when it deals with the possession of children, uh, it's kind of like common knowledge in that field that children who have been emotionally, physically, and sexually abused are usually the ones prone to possession mm -hmm. because their wills are broken down. And I think that's one of the things that uh, I've heard some critics say about the medical scenes is that they're so tedious and there's so much of it. And, you know, with the MRIs and the CAT scans and all this different stuff, I think one of the things that people miss is that that is part of the reason why Reagan is getting possessed so quickly is that every time they put her through these torturous medical procedures it is breaking her will more and more and more, allowing Pazuzu to take over faster and stronger. So in a way, these doctors are actually making it worse and expediting the process. So they are just as responsible, in my opinion, as the Ouija board and the demon are. They're, they're not knowing. It's the funny thing about it. It's like that educated naivety of like, we're doing our best to help and we're doing everything we can when really they're making it worse because they're putting a young girl through these just torturous mm -hmm. procedures and it's just breaking her down more and more, allowing the demon to get hold faster. Well, since we're on that note, because I was waiting to bring it up, this was probably the biggest bit of sound design in this fucking show for me. Yes. It's when she's going through these procedures and there's no music and sometimes you'll see they're crying and I know they're fake because it's obviously a movie. But like the when they start like giving the IV to her neck and stuff like that, it's just like everything's just the way it's shot. It's really like they make it seem very realistic, and there's no sound. And then when he, she's getting the scans, it's all the sound from the machines is heightened. It's loud as shit. You're just hearing banging and clicking. And in some scenes, they you'll do see make that noise. Huh? They do make. I, that I know, noise. but it's like it's they're bringing a point to how how significant yeah. with what's going on, on the screen. And then there's times where she's behind the glass and you can see her crying, but you can't hear her crying, but you just mm -hmm. hear the machinery going. And it, that, that was like the big one for me. I was like, damn. Yeah. I mean, also, the, the like we said, the time that this took place, you know, it's a lot different now. You know, she's getting an MRI and that thing is shaking like crazy. And it's, mm -hmm. and it's kind of a symbol, uh, you know, kind of symbolism to uh, what we see later with the bed shaking and, and mm -hmm. you know, just... It, her experience in the hospital being uh, almost probably as terrifying as being possessed by this demon. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that whole, that whole scene with her getting that procedure done where they have to put the IV in her neck or whatever they were doing. And that blood is just squirting across the table. It's horrifying because it looks yeah. so real. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Cause they keep, they keep the blood on her. on her. Yeah. Like it shoots like down to her knees. Mm -hmm. And like they keep it on her, and I'm like, well, damn. Mm -hmm. Is this the scene that has the uh, the medical assistant who is an actual serial killer? Oh yeah, it is. Oh man, actually, I think I wrote it. No, that's um, I think I, actually, I think it's a little bit later, but we'll we'll talk about more about him when we get to uh, that spot. The mustache guy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was a, a later a later scene. But um, okay, you find out that Mrs. Karras, uh, Father Karras's mom, died. She died off screen. She just like she, so she something happened to her 
they go visit her at the hospital. She blames him for leaving her there. And then I guess like the next, pretty much the next scene is you find out that she died and it's more, and it doesn't even come from him. It comes from father Dyer. Who's at the part, uh, who's at uh, Chris's party. Cause he's, he's uh, there playing the piano and talking about, uh, talking about it. Uh, this is when you meet the, the, the director and he is drunker than a skunk. Uh, getting carried out of the the house. He keeps calling the house guy a Nazi. Nazi. He's like, I'm yeah. Swedish. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And he like tries to fight him in the kitchen. I'm like, oh shit, I don't remember this. <laughs> I told him. I, I told. Him, I leaned over to Angela. I was like, that Swiss dude should have kicked his fucking teeth. In. He right? was going to. He was 100 percent going, going to. to. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, this is when everybody gathers around the piano. Father Dyer's playing a song, and Reagan joins in and just goes, "You're all gonna die up there," and then pisses <laughs> on the floor. And uh, so Chris gets her back to sleep and this is when she goes back up there to like say goodnight to her. She hears she hears screaming. So she runs up and that's when the bed is shaking and she jumps on the bed while it's shaking. And you know, uh, instead of getting her off the bed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at least she didn't just run out of the room and just leave her there by herself. At least she joined her on the <laughs> shaky bed. So Father Dyer goes and visits Father Karis because Karis is going through some shit. Because his mom just died. And this is when, uh, for one, weird thing that I noticed, you have uh, Father Dyer comes in. They they share some booze. They have a a couple joke. Hey, where'd you get this? Where'd you get that liquor? I don't remember what it was. And he was like, oh, I stole it. I thought that was cool. Because at the end of the conversation, he's like, stealing is a sin. Yeah. 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 But he lays Karis down on the bed and takes the cigarette out of his hand and smokes it. And keeps it. But then when they cut back to Karis in the bed, he has the cigarette back in his hand again when Dyer walks out the door. Like the same one, not like a brand new cigarette, the same one. So it was like they, yeah, just the small little, I love picking up on those uh, continuity misses that they, that they probably just like, who gives a shit? Nobody cares. No one's got to figure this out. And then little old me is just like, hey, <laughs> bitch just got that guy's cigarette. The shrimp scene in Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. That was amazing. Oh yeah. <laughs> um this is where you get the dream that Karis has about his mom, which to be honest, I forgot was a dream. Uh but this is where she's coming out of the subway and then you know, you hear her like, "Yeah, why did you leave me? Why did you leave me?" And of course, it's him yeah. running and then she just disappears. We get more tests done on Reagan, and it's just it's it's kind of heartbreaking watching her going through all these procedures and 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 tests and all that, and she's just terrified, like crying on the table, and it really sucks. And this is when, uh, so you find out that she has well, supposedly she has a legion uh, a lesion on her temporal lobe, and so they got to get it out. They got to get all the scar tissue out of there. So they got to do this terrifying procedure, and the uh, tech assistant is an actual serial killer. The must the guy with the mustache, uh he was found guilty of killing a journalist and then they later connected him to like five other murders. I guess he used to do what Jeffrey Dahmer did. He was the trash bag killer. Yep. So that's terrifying. <laughs> I didn't realize what his name was and I was like, "Oh, I've heard him before." Yeah. You got to get Ashley to cover that that case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And x-rays were just absolutely terrifying in 1973. <laughs> terrifying. But they were also doing other tests as well, but it was like, holy shit. 
well, I'm watching this thing, like, fly around. I'm like, God, is it going to, like, hit her or something? Like, just... I don't remember things being like that. Like, I wasn't born in the 70s, but I was big on, like, medical equipment. And I was mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't remember learning about that one, but, you know. It's just a, ra- a freaking plutonium core. It's just zapping radiation <laughs> straight onto your face. Well, pretty much. Well, that procedure is bad, too, because how it works is they're actually pumping her full of barium. Like, they were putting chemicals into her bloodstream and brain, because that's the only thing that this thing can pick up as it's taking pictures. So it just makes that even more excruciating and and more traumatic as it goes through. Mm -hmm. Right, because nowadays, when you do, like, an EKG, they pump you with, uh, like, some sort of saline that, like, makes it so it shows up on the tests. But it's not harmful. Well, at least that's what they say. It's not harmful to your body like they're in. Well, yeah, 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 you don't know. <laughs> I could be either way, but you know. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so shit starts happening at home. So the doctors make a house call, and Reagan is going through it. And this is kind of when the demon starts to make its appearance, and you start hearing the voice. And uh, so they finally bring in a psychiatrist and um, they're like, uh, you know, where's Reagan? You know, we're talking to the voice that's inside Reagan or the other person that's inside Reagan right now. And that's when the demon voice starts to, to come out and it's like, Oh, well, can we have Reagan back? And it's like, nah, the sow is mine. That's when she grabs the guy's dick. Yes, (laughs) she does. She sure does. And this is when the doctors the doctors come out to talk to Chris and they're trying to rationalize it based on like their expertise. Like they're trying to make it make sense to them where Chris is like, no, that's not what's happening right now. Like they're pretty much trying to, oh, there could be, it could be something else. There could be more scar tissue in there that we need to get out. It could be affecting her emotions. And she's like, no, no, we're not doing that again. Like that's clearly not yeah. what's happening. And torturing her at could, this point. Because they don't want to fall into the fact, they don't want to jump into like, oh, it could be a demon. Like, no one was going to come out and just be like, it's a demon. (laughs) Because it's crazy to think about, you know, in in this movie, they even mention it, the fact that like when Chris talks to Father Karras later in the movie, which we'll we'll jump all over the place, uh, he mentions the fact that like exorcisms just aren't done anymore. Like, they're just very rare. And like, I think, you know, you know, Chris is like, well, what, what would happen if what could we do to get an exorcism done? He's like, well, we'd have to travel back to the 16th century. Like, it's just yep. something that the church doesn't even do much of anymore. But also the fact is we've seen it in other, you know, we saw it in the conjuring, the fact that like when an exorcism needs to be done, you have to get the approval from the church. The Pope actually has to approve it. It's a weird process. And uh, so, yeah, we kind of get to see, um, get to see that process of like Karis gathering evidence to pretty much show the church yeah this is this is a demon this isn't anything else like i i even i thought it was funny even with the scenes where she's full out demon voice and there's like there's no way in hell this little girl is making that voice on her own no where they're still trying to well it could be anything it could be something they're just trying to rationalize it the best they can but it's just like you got nothing you guys have nothing you're making no sense at all this is a 12-year-old girl, and she sounds like a 75-year-old woman who's been smoking <laughs> her entire life. Yeah. Which is pretty much 
what Mercedes several packs a days. She literally would. She smoked a lot. She drank a lot. Like she would actually drink a lot on purpose to kind of get her uh, vocal cords to be that raspy and and uh, and low. And she did a lot. She did a lot to get that yeah. iconic voice. Sounds like it. Uh, so going back, the room starts getting cold. Like Chris goes into her room. She could see her breath, which Free can actually put a a refrigeration system in the room so he could get the room down to negative 20 degrees (laughs) to the point where Linda Blair has permanent like nerve damage from having to sit in that room for long periods of time uh, just wearing a nightgown and some long stockings. I get the guy. See your breath. At 32 degrees. That's what I was going to say. Install a fucking thermostat, bro. Just keep it like 30. Yeah, he like wanted it to be natural. Yeah, he wanted the natural, you know, the breath. Uh, he 30 degrees. Like, yeah, negative. 30 degrees. I, I heard it was like that was the lowest he would. I don't think that's where it was all the time, but it was to the point where I guess it it actually gave Linda Blair permanent nerve damage. Well, the um, reason why they had to keep it that cold is because the lights were warming the room. That's true. So if they kept it at like a... 30, 32, the lights would bring it back up to 50, so they really had to compensate by going lower. I'm not saying it was the right thing to do. That's but way too low. That's why they're like, oh, we gotta bring it down more because these lights are heating everything up, but we can't yeah. shoot it in the dark, so... Yeah. Experiment yeah. with it. Don't just be like, hey, fuck it! Stick well, that's a, well, that's the yeah. thing. Right. That, well, that's the thing is, is uh, I mean, you, listen, I, I don't want... I, I, I'm not trying to do this episode to bash William Freakin. It's not... That's not my purpose of, of doing this. I'm just sharing the stories and the history of this movie and what, you know, yeah. I, I can't point, I'm not going to point my finger and be like, it's all his fault. Like all these bad things no. happened because it wasn't, it was the Warner brothers was literally breathing down his neck, like literally wondering what the hell was going on. Why was it going over? Like I said, it was a $2 million budget that ended up being $12 million at the end of production. So the studio is literally going, what the fuck is going on with this movie? And what's in this movie? I'm surprised it got made. In yeah, it's it's wild because you have things like that. I guess there was stories of, uh, you know, he would fire and rehire people within like the same like a couple days. There was a guy who had to I guess he had to leave because uh, a family member passed away. So he had to leave on bereavement for a couple days. And when he came back, they were still shooting the exact same scene that they were shooting when he left. It's wild stuff, man. Do you it, it, it's all over. I mean, listen, you can find everything on the internet and there's a lot of interviews with freaking himself. And of course that episode of curse films to really break down just the insanity that was the making of this movie. Yeah. The room, the room is cold and we find out that, uh, so Chris comes home and Sharon, she finds that Sharon is just getting back too from getting something for Reagan and that they left medication and that they left Burke with Reagan. Burke I don't know why you do that in the first fucking place, dude. Yeah, I was yeah. like, you left that guy? Okay. Leave him with the alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> and it was pretty much, she was just like, yeah, I got back and he wasn't there. He just left. <laughs> but that's not really what left happened. Out, <laughs> left out the window. No. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, so you find out that he's dead. And uh, yeah, it, whew, right. And this is when you, while they're having this conversation, this is when Reagan spider walks down the stairs 
with the blood just pouring out of her mouth. And it's a terrifying shot because you can like she you can generally see the fear in her eyes because you know that she is not doing any of this on her own. So then there's a psych session that doesn't go so well with with Reagan. Uh, we have Karis talking with the detective Kinderman. He visits him at the track. They have a conversation about uh, Burke and that his head was spun completely around. Like, oh, that's beautiful. What are the chances? One in a million. Yeah. And this is when you also get the whole conversation where he asks, uh, "Do you like, do you like uh, movies? Do you like going to see movies?" And he's like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Well, I got, I got some passes to go to this movie." He's like, "Well, what, what is it?" And then he explains what the movie is, who's in the movie, and he's like, "Oh, I've seen that one." And he's like, "Okay." <laughs> Which was all bullshit. He was just giving him like a story, which yeah. I, I think is funny. And here's the thing that definitely got left out of the movie is that that relationship between Karis and Kinderman in the book goes a lot further and a lot longer because it is essentially the main plot point of Exorcist 3 where Kinderman is talking about Karis, how they were friends, best friends, would go to the movies together and stuff like that. That doesn't connect with this one because it's literally like what a week that yeah. these guys are even like communicating with each other. So that is where some of the exposition gets lost between the translation of the book to the movie and then this movie to the third one. But I, it's fun to kind of connect those dots. I don't think most cinema watchers are going to catch that. But if you're dissectors like us, you're like, oh, wait a second. But does that really work timeline wise? No, but it's okay. Right. I'm literally while we were watching the scene, I leaned over to my wife and I was like, "If this took place nowadays, Enderman and fucking or Childman is what his name would translate to in German, uh, <laughs> and uh, Karis would totally have a podcast. Oh yeah, when I talk about movies. Yeah, they would. Uh, 100% have that. that would exist. Oh <laughs> uh, yes, hundred percent. Not where I thought you were going L- with that, but clergy like and the it. cop. Yeah, yeah. perfect, <laughs> perfect. Make it happen. Uh, so you find out 83 doctors have looked at Reagan's case and no solutions. So pretty much it's time to find an exorcist. And this is when you get the whole thing, uh, you know, this whole process of just like, yeah, this isn't a thing anymore. Like this isn't common, you know, so it's going to be a process. And also let's, I, I need to see what's really going on. Reagan goes home from the hospital. And this is when the detective investigates the steps, investigating Burke's death, but then realizes where the steps lead to, which is the McNeil house. So he uh, goes and talks to Chris and you have this pleasant conversation asking questions about Burke. And of course you get the cute, uh, the cute little interaction where he's like, Oh, Hey, my daughter is a big fan of yours. Can you sign, sign something for me? And she's like, Oh yeah, of course. And then he's like, Oh, I lied. It's for me. (laughs) (laughs) And I love the whole thing where, even when they're leaving or when he's leaving, he's like, oh, you're a very nice woman. And she's like, you're a very nice man. And then he walks out the door and her face is like, fuck, oh, God, when was he going to leave? <laughs> so this is when you get the really grab, probably one of the most graphic scenes of the movie is uh, when she goes into the room. And this is when Reagan is mutilating herself with the cross and saying some very vulgar things that I won't repeat. You'll have to watch the movie. Um, 
even the part where like she grabs her mom's head and shoves it down there and it's like that guy, that guy. <laughs> and you're like, Jesus Christ. Even today, you're just like, God damn. And then just slaps her ass oh, against the this, wall. And this is, this is when Ellen Burstyn actually got hurt when she got thrown across the room here because the harness wasn't secured to her, right? So when it pulled her, it fucked up her back. It like completely fucked up her coccyx. I've done yeah, that that's, before. That scream is the actual Genuine. scream when they broke her, her coccyx. Like, they kept that take, which I think is hilarious, you know? <laughs> but whatever. Yeah. I felt like, the yes, pain. Use the one I where she understand. hurt herself. I can understand. Aragorn, kick the helmet again. And oh, I'm sorry. This, right? is, <laughs> this is when you get a shot where, for the longest time, I didn't realize that, that there was a connection. Uh, it's when uh, Chris gets thrown against the wall, and that's when Reagan's head turns around and Burke's voice comes out of her where he goes, mm-hmm. where he goes, what does he say? He's like, oh, you know what your cunt daughter did or something like that. Mm-hmm. I oh. never realized that that was Burke's voice. I thought that was the demon's voice. Mm-hmm. So the reason she spins her head around is because that's how Burke died. His head got spun Ooh. around. So that's why she does okay. it with Burke's voice coming out. Okay. So that makes yeah, sense. I thought that was, that was an interesting one. Um, so this is when, you know, this is when Chris meets Father Karras uh, and he she brings him back to the house and he meets Reagan. And this is when you get uh, the demon um, talking about one of the Pantera albums uh, called Vulgar Display of Power. Yes. <laughs> Fuck yes. <laughs> because I love it, though, where she opens the drawer and he shuts it and he's like, can you do that again? And, and she's like, well, that... Uh, th- that's a vulgar display of power. Pretty much like, yes, I can, but taking the the restraints off her wrist. Oh, that's what. Yeah, that's what she does. He's like, well, why don't yes. you? If if you're so powerful, why wouldn't you just take the straps off? And that's what he says. That and it's like, well, that okay. So it's one of those things where you're questioning whether or not can can the demon actually do it, or is he just fucking with him? But then you later find, get your answer. And, oh yeah. And this is when the demon is just fucking with him. He's like, you know, your mother's in here, Karis. You know, you want to leave a message? <laughs> and uh, this is when you get the pea soup vomit, which uh, originally was supposed to hit him in the chest. And it hit him in the face. And so his reaction to him wiping it off his face is genuine. He was fucking pissed. <laughs> One of the tubes broke and it's yep. like, oh, it is, hey. yep. whoops. But it's yeah, cool. sure, it was an accident. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Friedkin didn't mean to have uh, it hit him in the face. I can just imagine him yeah. out on the, off on the side just <laughs> laughing his ass off. I <laughs> got him. <laughs> Next time, get his eyes. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then this is when he comes in and he's talking again, keeps talking to the demon brings his holy water, and this is when you get the most iconic line for me of this movie when he's like, oh, this is an excellent day for an exorcism. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is when he splashes the holy water, in quotations, and the demon reacts to it, uh, but then you later find out it wasn't holy water, it was tap water. So it's like, this is when he starts to question, is this real? Because clearly, yeah. uh, if it's not holy water and it's reacting to this, is this... Is this real? So I think the demon does it on purpose. I think it's trying to fuck with his case so they yep. don't bring in an exorcist. Ah, 
That makes a lot of sense. I just assume it's like my kids when they get water on them. I'm like, it's just water. It'll dry. It mm-hmm. burns. Yeah. I'm dying. You just got a little scratch. You're not even bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> this is when he he's been recording everything, too. And he gets well, I know he wasn't recording anything. He took some recordings and he brings them somewhere to get them. Uh, he's trying to figure out what they're saying. And then he finds out that it's just English backwards that the, the, the demon is talking. Uh, Which, he, again, is a demon fucking with them to fuck up his case. Right. Because he's trying to prove it to some other people in the church, and they're just kind of like, eh, I don't know about this. <laughs> this one he sees, he, he goes to Reagan, and she is, of course, it's reacting, and, and it's kind of being like a split between the demon and Reagan, like pushing herself out, and she's communicating through her body by having helped me across her stomach, which I thought was a, a reading how they did this, it was like a, a cool, like, a wax uh, covering and they would um, they would have the help me over it or like they'd have help me in wax and then they would put another layer over it and then heat it up so it looks like it was rising out of the skin. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Really cool okay. So Karis goes to get the exorcism approved because he is 100% believes that this is clearly a demon and they're like yeah I think I think this would be good for you but we want to bring somebody in who has a lot of experience in this so we're going to bring in Father Marin. And I was like, damn, we see this man in the beginning of this movie. and We don't see him to almost 30 minutes left of the movie. Like there's yep. at this point, there's only like 34 minutes left of the movie, which is wild. I thought he was in this movie way more. Yeah. So this is when we get the iconic shot outside the house where Father Marin yep. arrives. And it's fantastic. And this is when he goes in and Karis is trying to, hey, do you want to know the history of this uh, of this case? And he's just like, no, we need to start immediately. It doesn't matter. We need to just we just need to do this. Um, And you're just seeing as and the eeriness of of everything going forward is the fact that you always hear Reagan moaning. Yes. Like everywhere. And you even have like the one uh, I think it's Sharon. She's like wearing the headphones and she can, she's like, everybody is being affected by what's going on in some way, shape or form. Uh, but that moan, that demonic moan just haunts me. It's so good and effective uh, for the rest of this movie. This is when you get the, uh, your mother sucks cocks in hell, Karis. <laughs> oh, so, what was the other movie that we talked about on the show that had like a similar line to this. Oh, I did they use it in an evil dead in evil dead rise? I, we, we didn't talk about that movie on, no. uh, we didn't talk about this movie, but I swear they talked or maybe no, it was evil dead 2013. Oh, okay. When the girls yeah, yeah, in the yeah, basement yeah. and yeah, I'll, talking, I'll yeah. suck your brother's cock or something like that. Yeah. Some yeah. Weird thing. Yeah. All I can um, think of is the meme that somebody shared a few months ago. It says your mother folds socks in hell. Yes. <laughs> Fucking Yes. <laughs> Uh, this is when you get so, the deep. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, like, uh, I, I wonder if anyone else made this connection because I, I made it on this last review viewing and, and uh, the one before it where I'm really convinced of like how the demon was fucking up Karis's case because the demon knows that the only person that can expel him from Reagan is Marin. And he knows this because at the very beginning when Marin is having, like you said, that face off with the statue, we get the subliminal flash of Pazuzu's face. So Pazuzu yep. is there. 
Yeah. It mm-hmm. sees him. So therefore, it knows that Marin's the only one that can cast him out before it eventually kills Reagan and takes her soul. That is why he's fucking up Karis's case, because he knows that Marin is the only one in there. And in fact, that's why he kind of taunts Karis of what a lovely day for an exorcism. He wants Karis to be the one to try and attempt it without Marin, because like like they said, if exorcisms are so easy to fail that it can also end up hurting the priest performing it too. Right. So it, I've seen this movie like 10 times or more, but it's really only the last two viewings where I like really started putting that together where it's like, oh yeah, Pazuzu is there at the beginning with the statue and therefore that's why he's trying to keep Marin the fuck out mm-hmm. of this, this situation. Yeah, because he knows that he can, he can manipulate Karis. He can really dig yeah. into mm-hmm. his uh psyche because of his mom and and he can use mm-hmm. these things against him where yeah he knows that Marin if Marin gets involved some he's probably going to succeed in some way this is when of course it starts getting intense the everything is like you know you get the uh her floating above the bed the power of Christ compels you and you actually see the holy water leaving marks on her mm-hmm. uh you get the the th- where sh- where the the demon like kind of blows out the room and like tosses them against the wall. And it's, uh, it's Reagan, like on her knees on the bed. And then the, the, the Pazuzu statue shows up, uh, as it looks like it's like, she's like bowing to it. Mm-hmm. Great image. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this is when you see that Karis is starting to get really affected by it because it's starting to talk like his mom. And he turns and he's like, you're not my mother. And that's when Marin's like, nope, get out. Nope, mm-hmm. can't have this. Can't do this. And they both go out. It's like, I think it's time for a break. And they kind of have a heart to heart on the stairs, but just talking about everything. And that's when um, Marin kind of goes off into his room. He's kind of being severely affected. You can tell that he's not of in good health. It kind of mentions that a little bit throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Karis goes back into the room and then Marin... Oh, no, Marin goes into the room first by himself and tries to do some stuff. And then Karis goes in and realizes that Marin is dead. Like he's dead, uh, pretty much face down on the bed. And that's when Karis just loses it. He just rips uh, Reagan, the demon, off the bed and just starts pounding her on the floor. And then pretty much saying, like, take me, take me to the point where then you can see the transformation of him becoming the demon, the eyes change, everything changes. And then you have like the, him fighting the demon on the decision he has to make. And then his decision is I need to run out this window and, and and kill myself because that's the only way that I'm, that this demon is going to be destroyed. And yeah, he falls out the window the same way that Burke does, but you don't see Burke's. You actually see this one and he lands at the bottom of the stairs. And of course you have Reagan crying in the corner because, and you later find out she doesn't remember anything. Like literally has no memory of uh, the events, pretty much most of the events of this movie. But you kind of feel like she does because when you see Father Dyer show up at the end to say goodbye, because they're just like, after this is over, they're like, we're getting out of here. And then, and even the housekeepers are like, yeah, we don't want any part of this either. Like Sharon's like, I'm good. I'm going to go do something else now. And uh, yeah, Father Dyer shows up, says goodbye. But then you have Reagan uh, hug him and kiss him on the cheek. And where you kind of know, like, she must know something. She must know that he was involved. You've seen in the some caller. Way. Right. The priest caller. Yeah. And 
we then see Dyer and Kinderman meet up again because Kinderman actually walks into the room with Chris at, right as Karis jumps out the window. And yes. then you get like Dyer uh, crying over Karis's body. And yeah. And uh, Kinderman and Dyer meet up again. They have the same exact conversation that Kinderman had with Karis about going to the movies. And then, yeah, that's it. That is The Exorcist from 1973. So now that we have talked about the behind the scenes and we've talked about gone through the plot of this movie, now it is time to talk about our thoughts on the movie uh, going into it now. Like, uh, you know, after our latest viewings, what do we think of The Exorcist? Antonio, start us off. Oh, I'd love to. I mean, this is one of the very few horror films that is from its time that I think holds up today, even with like modern audiences probably being bored by the exposition and, you know, these elderly characters, you could say these old boomer people, the, the scares, the idea of demon possession, that is all still very, very relevant. And I like to think of it as, you know, the fact that it is shot very stylistically and almost to like what was said earlier, how it almost doesn't feel like America. I feel that there are a lot of like European, maybe even like Italian uh, giallo techniques and camera work and framing that do make it feel not of its particular time and place. You know, it, there's something very mysterious about it where today, if we had a movie like this, it would be done very stylistically. We already talked about Conjuring. We already talked about uh, the Ouija movies. Uh people would need a little bit more quick edits and jump scares where this does have jump scares. They are drawn out. They make you wait for them. They don't just throw them at you willy nilly. So I think that part holds up, but I can also see why um, for any newer uh, incarnations of it, they have to kind of adapt to the time because it is very much a piece of 70s cinema if you're not a fan of cinema, then it might just be a little rudimentary for you. You're going to want something a little bit more uh, modern with its cinematography and with its actor and with the score. Like you said, lack of score for the most part. So I think that's where it falls, in my opinion, of how audiences would see it. But for me, this is a film that every time I watch it, I get more and more out of it. I get more and more respect for the performances in it. And as we've touched on many times in this conversation, I get a little bit more uh, anxiety about how those performances were achieved. You know, the, the things that the directors and the filmmakers and the studio did just to get the shot, just to get the moment at the expense of people's health, mental wellness. And you know, there's lots of rumors of this thing being cursed, whether or not you want to believe that it was a spirit or some kind of entity that was cursing this production, you can't say that there was definitely a negative energy involved in its production when it comes to, you know, the, the budget, the deadlines, the timelines. If you're creating this, this atmosphere of anxious and negative energy to get this really dark story done, well, then you're creating negative and dark energy amongst everyone involved. So whatever your definition of cursed is, whether it's spiritual or whether it's, it's atmospheric. I think that's one of the things that makes this film exciting to revisit 
and to analyze. And I don't even think we're done analyzing yet. There's so many physical releases of this movie, each with like special features and documentaries behind the scenes. There's books, there's articles, there's blogs, there's podcasts. It's really a never-ending treasure trove of, of information when it comes to people's thoughts of this movie. So that's why I think it'll always be timeless. It's not going to fall off the radar like so many uh, horror movies of the day have fallen off the radar. All right. And Angela? Oh, okay. Uh, you went first last time. That's fair. Um, I, I can see why this people really like this movie. Um, it, it It's... <sighs> It's a little long-winded for me at sometimes, which, but again, you guys know my thing. Like I'm a smooth hour and a half kind of guy, and even though like the beginning I felt is really drawn out, it's shot wonderfully. Like I love the cinematography, I love the lack of sound, and it, it, yeah, there's some things that drag on a little bit, but I feel they just add to the story as well. So it's like a weird up and down with me. Like. I like at times the movie goes too long, but then like it may not be as impactful with its cinematography and its sound design and its characters. And I think everybody's interesting. I, I think out of everybody in this, I leaned more towards uh, Karis. I really liked him, Father Karis. And um, uh, I, mean, I like, like I said, all generally all the characters were interesting to some uh, extent. The, the acting was really well. I mean, this is all shit people have talked about before. Um <clears throat> I think the biggest compliment I could pay for this movie was during the middle of this, I was like, I need to go make something to eat. Because <laughs> uh, my body demands sustenance. And I walked in the kitchen, and I kept walking out of the kitchen and just standing there and watching the movie. So that's probably the biggest compliment I could get paid is, is I think this is a great movie. I, I think it help, holds up well, and I'll reflect uh, Antonio's comment that I, I think younger folks may be bored by the amount of exposition or how long it takes to get to the point. I, to uh, be without... honest, not, to, not to cut you off, but I, I've seen that like on, you know, because the fact that we were on like film Twitter and there's a lot of people on there that have varying opinions and yeah. um, seeing a lot of like young, the younger generation when it comes to the opinions on this movie, it's yeah, it's like, Oh yeah, it's not as scary or it, it's not as eventful as I was expecting it to be. People talk highly of this movie. It's like, yeah, I, I get it. To a degree, but also I think they're also missing the point of yeah. what this and movie is. But maybe, maybe everybody has an opinion, and it's just you know that's fine. I'm not gonna exactly. I'm not gonna be that angry guy like you don't understand. <laughs> You're gonna be the keyboard warrior. It, yeah, it, no, it thank may, you. It, I've never been that it, guy. Maybe just one of those you had to be there moments. Again, yeah. I didn't get to it until later in life, so I could appreciate different aspects of it. But that all being said, I'm not a fan of possession movies. Never have been but I think this is a very well-made film and for its, it, it is ahead of its time for the time it was made, knowing what we know now. Yeah. So, I mean, I agree with what both of you have said. Um, I can see where people have, have seen where this is first per se, but I also feel like it could be cursed through physical means. Like, Hey, we know this is going to happen. So let's kind of like, make it happen not necessarily that they're going they wanted anybody to get hurt but they wanted to make it be more realistic and things kind of backfired the negligence aspect yeah like they they want it to look more realistic but then things backfired like linda blair getting hurt in her the one scene with her body going back and forth right um or 
uh, Ellen Burstyn getting hurt. Like, I don't think they necessarily wanted them to get hurt, but they wanted it to look more realistic. But in turn, that's what happened. Price of Hollywood, baby. Like I, I can, I can see, I can see the the positive and negative from from both sides. Does it make me like the movie even less? No, I love this movie. Like every time I watch it, I, I'm like, like he walked away, and I'm like, where'd you go? <laughs> like come back. I was standing. There was a good chunk where I was just standing behind the couch watching it, and I was like, Ooh. he's over there making ramen, and he's just standing there at the kitchen, you should've, you should've right at the some, edge of the kitchen, like some creepy shit. Like just <laughs> or just screamed because I I don't think I knew that you hadn't watched it until we first started watching it and I'm like man I could really play into this yeah but here I am that's not really good reaction but that's not gonna, but, it, but that's the thing is like it, it the movie's not scary to me it's a right. really well made movie and there's some stuff that would disturbing imagery. But it's never like this movie's not scary to me. But, but like I respect this legacy and the movie that it is. Even not counting its legacy because I've never seen any of these movies. I've just heard about it growing up. Like ignoring all that, it's just a well-made fucking movie. But it's also mm-hmm. like when I started watching Gilmore Girls, and you're like, "Eh, you go watch your stuff," and I'll like catch him at the corner of the door, like watching as I'm watching. Like, I'm like, yeah, just I'm... come on, come on. Just, I think all, just sit down I think with all me. significant others are like that in a way where you have your yeah. shows or they have their shows and you're like, ah, I'm not going to, yeah. I have no interest in that. And yet I've watched, oh, I've literally probably seen so many episodes of keeping up with the Kardashians. I'm, I'm not even embarrassed anymore. It's just how life is. <laughs> Thank you, wife. <laughs> so, so seeing him watching this for the first time i'm like seeing that that side of him where he's he acts like he's not interested in something but then i see the little things that he does like he'll go and he'll like he was looking looking for something to eat he's like what do you want to eat tonight we had two options he's like we'll just fin for ourselves tonight I ain't got time to make this, this shit. Bullshit. And he's like, I gotta Literally. watch this movie. That's... So then he goes and makes his food, and he's—I can see him. He just keeps coming. It's kind of a good movie. He That's, keeps I... coming, and yeah. then he just stands there. Do you guys not understand what pause is? Like, you can pause the no. movie, go make the food, and then come back and watch it. What time frame? We have a time frame. Our kids were actually out of the house. So we were watching it upstairs. They literally got it. home just as the movie, like, after, like, all the climactic ending stuff. They literally got home. Was like, mm, but I can time. see him. He's standing like this. Okay. It was great. <laughs> so so that's when you know it's a... Yeah. Your feelings for a movie are validated. Yeah, I've seen this movie many times growing up. And, get, like I stated earlier, seeing this as an adult was a whole new experience. Because I had not seen this since I was in high school. And so getting to appreciate from beginning to end um, was a fun experience. And also just getting to find new things that you just didn't, you know, you know, see before, like, you know, just slight imagery things or uh, the fact of just knowing things about the movie after seeing it multiple times. And then you have that new information and you kind of get to piece the puzzle together. And it was, it's a wild ride. And yeah, the performances are fantastic. I think the fact that, to be honest, I think Linda Blair deserved her nomination, even though maybe she, yes, she wasn't the voice of the demon, but she also was a 
a lot of the physical uh, aspects of that possession and you know her go, the things that she went through in this movie and and her like general like emotions like when she's crying it feels like she is actually crying and she could have been crying yeah. just based on the things that we hear about this movie and i i just think everybody around just just played into it so well and uh it 50 years later this movie is still in my opinion one of the greatest horror films ever like it still holds up so well uh and it just shows yes filmmaking back then you got had you had to do some shady shit uh which you know a lot of the stuff definitely not okay i'm not advocating for the way things were done but that but the but the end result that we get uh is fantastic and the exorcist is definitely uh a um a legendary film and it was the birth of the possession films and i think it still is the greatest possession film ever made i don't know dude in my opinion it that, it, it that challenged the world possessed the people with giant flying stingray monsters come on <laughs> come on guys the giant cactus dude that shoots stingrays out come oh. on <laughs> Possession movie. I'm kidding. No, I know what you mean. I'm just being an idiot. Yeah. And we've covered a lot of possession movies on this on this show. So this, I mean, this was the 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 father of all of those, and it's still, in my opinion, the greatest. But that's it. That is our conversation, our dissection of The Exorcist. There's a lot that we didn't talk about because this, like I said, the, everybody has talked about this movie at some point. Podcast, you know, there's shows, you know, internet, all that stuff, articles. And uh, there's a lot of stuff you guys can read up on watch uh, that'll add some more information that we didn't even come close to covering on this almost two hour episode. So now it is time for the end of the show where our guest shares what they are doing with their shows and uh, tells everybody where they can find them. So Antonio, please share with us. Oh, for sure. So at the time of this recording, the latest episode that we released was on Lucio Fulci's The Beyond, a classic zombie movie from 1981. I had Anthony from Cult Movies Pod as my guest on that one. Then I've got an episode dedicated to Ken Russell coming up, as well as a look back on Roger Avery's Rules of Attraction. So that's what's coming up on that show. And then I've got the MILF and me, of course. My co-host, Diana, has just returned, recorded with her today from a two-month break where I had a bunch of guest hosts filling in. So that's really exciting. And then like the last thing I want to plug is I've got a new podcast coming out in January with uh, Justin Henson, who's the host of a podcast called The Movie Wire. I'm not going to give away like the title and everything yet, but let's just say that it is a podcast dedicated to critiquing the critics of the 80s where we're not actually critiquing the movies we're critiquing what they said about the movies most of these films are films that we loved and they hated and we're just kind of going to tell them why they might be kind of wrong about that so look forward to that in uh, 2024 very exciting very exciting and as i said earlier all of the links to the shows and all of the social links will be down in the description. So make sure to follow Antonio and the Cult Worthy uh, everywhere you can and on all the podcast apps. Please do that. Um, thank you so much for being on the show today. This was an absolute pleasure. You are thank you much. You are yes. a, a wonderful guest and a wonderful person. So thank you very much oh. for agreeing to be on the show. 
and a wonderful tone. Oh, thank of you for having me. Yeah, yeah nice hair you... too. <laughs> oh well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried not to take over your show. Uh, I haven't done that yet, but I'm very conscious about. I, I want to add in the things that I studied and my notes, but uh, I could also see myself getting carried away with tangents, which I told you was going to be my hardest thing to avoid, <laughs> and I think I did a good job. <laughs> I got called out earlier for that. Yes. Yeah, I was like, well, I don't want to get called out. <laughs> Can't help it. No, it. You know what? We we got a lot of tangents on that. We have a lot of tangents on the show, and uh, I think it's more of just the fact that I have to edit, so that's where I try to keep things uh you know not as long but uh it's both well, sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but yes thank you again this was an absolute blast uh having you on and you are definitely more than welcome to come back uh as soon as i yeah, figure wait. out what the next movie to have you come back on the cover um next year we're going to be covering a lot of a lot more topic episodes not just covering a single movie but we're going to be doing more topic episodes so maybe uh we can have you join us for something, uh, a topic instead of a movie itself, which I think would be a lot of fun. Um, as for our socials, you can find us at Dissect That Film on all the social media. So we're on X slash Twitter, Instagram, uh, threads, TikTok, uh, I, Facebook I, sometimes. And of course, you're listening to us on your favorite podcast app. So what I'm going to ask you is to go to your favorite podcast app and if you can rate or review us, make sure to do that. Five stars really helps our show, gets us into more ears. If you watch us on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. And uh, it's free. All of this is free, which is great. And um, all of Angela and Dan's links will be down in the description. My personal links will be down in the description. And before we go, next week is Thanksgiving. At least here in the United States, it's Thanksgiving. Get fat, motherfuckers! So we are gonna be we are gonna be going from a iconic film like The Exorcist to 1987's Blood Rage. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> because guess what? That ain't cranberry sauce. <laughs> so that's what we're gonna be talking about next week on the show to celebrate Thanksgiving. We're gonna be talking about 1987's Blood Rage. And then, uh, then it's uh, then it's the holiday time. It's Christmas time where we're doing our Christmas favorites. It's going to be a lot of fun. We don't know what we're covering yet, but that's going to be a lot of fun. So until next time. Oh, wait, before I go, we do have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Dissect That Film. We're at the $1 and $3 and $5 tiers. You get some extra goodies. Uh, we have a show called The Monster Zone where we talk about monster movies twice a month over on our $3 tier. And it's hosted by Dan and Angela. And then at our $5 tier, we're going to be having some fun stuff planned for 2024 that I won't really go into here. But uh, if you check out our live show, we are probably going to talk more about it there. Uh, but yeah, patreon.com slash dissect that film. Thank you to all of our patrons right now. You guys are amazing. We appreciate you very much. And to everybody who listens to the show, we love you. And until next time, I'm Brett Parker. That is Dan and Angela of DNA Gaming. And that is Antonio of the Coltworthy podcast in Milf and Me. And this has been the Dissect That Film podcast episode 133. We'll see you all again next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.